0: As we're entering into the Christmas season, what we've been doing is looking at Old Testament shadows of Christ. And you remember last week, we considered the story of Melchizedek, and then we also looked at David and Goliath, and we considered how both of those stories are really types and shadows of Jesus. And so this week, I'd like to invite us to look at the story of Isaac. Do you remember the story of Isaac begins with the promise of a miraculous birth. In that way it is a shadow of the Christmas story. It's all about how God's promises are invincible. That's what this is about. God overcomes every apparent natural obstacle. He 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 goes above nature in order to fulfill his promises. So let's look at the story together in Genesis 18. We'll actually be looking at a couple of different chapters in Genesis, but here we, we see a couple of things. First, that God graciously promises the child. Second, God graciously gives the child. So He promises and then He gives. He tells us, what he is going to do to bless, and then he actually blesses. And so before we read this together, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, that every word you speak is true, that we can bank all of our lives upon it. And we thank you that all of the words of Scripture ultimately run to Jesus because they're all about you. And you are chiefly revealed in the face of your Son. And so help us to see him here this morning, seeing him to believe him, believing Him to love Him and worship Him for Your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, let's see God's gracious promise of a child. Look look with me at Genesis 18, verse 1. It says, And the Lord, and do you see the all caps there in your Bible? The Lord, that is Yahweh. It is the four-letter root of, of God's name. It's His personal name. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So here, Yahweh, look, appears to Abraham. Now, if you're paying attention when you read the Old Testament, you you see that God does this a lot. He appears in, in some kind of visible human form. Remember, human beings are made in God's image, And so when God manifests himself, what does he appear as? A man, an image. (laughs) Now that image is a created manifestation of God, just like you and I are images, we are not God, are we? We're images, which means manifestations of him. But these created manifestations of God are real manifestations of him, but they don't reveal the very essence or being of God. So we have to be careful in interpreting this. 1 John 4 12 says, No one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 17 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. You cannot, what the point of this is, you cannot see the being of God. He is spirit. Physical eyes cannot behold the very essence of God. Now, that having been said, God does manifest himself visibly all through the scriptures, actually. Notice two things here, though, about Yahweh's appearance. First, he appears by the oaks of Mamre. What is the point? Why is that mentioned there? Is it just a color in the story? Like, why do they have an oaks of Mamre? in this story. Well, throughout the Bible, trees are symbols of God's presence. Why? Well, think about the land of Israel. It's, it's not like, it's not always lush. If you've ever been there or seen it, it's a lot of dry, barren places, but there are patches of life and health. And, and the oaks of Mamre, these are big, mighty trees that have survived the difficulty of the region, their, their roots go down deep. This is showing that our God is a God of fullness of life. He appears there. Where would you expect the God of life to be? He's there. The trees, there are actually trees all through the Bible. There are trees in the Garden of Eden, which is the place of God's presence. The golden lampstand in the temple, do you remember that it was patterned after an almond tree? and there will be a tree of life in heaven. Trees are associated with the presence of God. It's signifying that He is a life-giving God, the giver of all life. That's the first thing to notice. Second, notice it says Abraham was by his tent. Now, no first-century reader, no no first-century, no ancient reader would have missed this. That's his house. It's a place of dwelling. It calls to mind the, the dwelling of God. God has a tent. God has a tabernacle and God is visiting Abraham at his house. Maybe you would think of how Jesus went to visit Zacchaeus' house and saved him. This story is about the one true God of life coming to visit Abraham. That's really significant. Abraham doesn't come to visit God in this story. Abraham is not seeking God, he's not looking for God. God comes to Abraham by grace, and he's a God of life. But then we come to verse 2. And verse 2 says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Whoa. It says, Yahweh appeared, and now what's Abraham see? Three men standing in front of him when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth, fell on his face. So it says Yahweh appeared, and that's singular. How many Yahwehs? One. How many men did he see? Three. Huh. Well, what's going on here? Look at verse 2. It says he saw the three men standing in front of him. Then verse 3 says Abraham addressed God and said, O Lord. How does he address these three men? in the singular. He doesn't say, oh, my lords. He looks at these three men and he says, oh, Lord. These three men also seem to speak in unison. Look at verse 5. It says, they said, do as you have said. They said that. Then again in verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? How could one of them say it if all of them are saying it? I mean, that, you can't say, where is Sarah, your wife, in the plural, unless all three of you are saying it. What do they do? Each one say a different word? No, it appears that they're saying it in unison. Then the very next verse, in verse 10, the Lord, it's back to the singular, the Lord, Yahweh said, I will surely return to you. So we have this narrative alterate, alternating between they said and Yahweh said, what are we to make of this? Well, when Yahweh appears, three men appear to Abraham. Abraham only addresses the Lord. And the Lord is the one who speaks, and yet they are said to speak together. So this is where a good understanding of biblical interpretation comes in, like we were talking about last week. How do we interpret this? What do we say? We begin with the first level literal grammatical historical meaning, and then we read it theologically. Right? We need to do that. So let's look at the literal level. At the literal level, you can start to see what it means in verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. So apparently, two men left and went to Sodom, and Abraham stayed before the Lord. But then, he has this conversation, which we normally think of as, as his intercession before the Lord, and he's praying for, for Sodom, you know. But look what it says in verse 33. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his, his place. So the Lord went his way. So you have two that go to Sodom. And the Lord stays and talks to Abraham, and then the Lord goes away. And then Genesis 19 verse 1 tells us the other two are now in Sodom. It says the two, now we know what they are, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Here you have two angels. One of those three men was a manifestation of Yahweh, two were angels. Now, that's the literal interpretation of the passage. That's what it means. But doesn't it also seem that the Bible is signifying something else at the theological level? Why do all three men speak in unison? Why are there only three figures? Why exactly three figures? Why does this text alternate between Yahweh speaking and the three speaking together? I would suggest that there's a typological allusion to the Trinity here, that this is not the Trinity, this is where we get off as we think that the literal is the theological in every case. No, it's not the Trinity. Rather, it is a picture of it. God knew that he would reveal the Trinity, was revealing, and would finally reveal the fullness of the Trinity, and he did it this way. We can look back and we can see the illusion, the symbol. Now, we need to be know what this means. Here's what this means. This text does not prove the Trinity. Doctrines cannot be established by typology. The doctrines of the church must be established by the direct teaching of the Bible. But after doctrines are established from places that are clear, then we're in a position to see types and shadows of those doctrines in other places. And I submit this is one of those places. This is a spiritual interpretation, meaning God knew what He was doing when He wrote this and when He cause things to fall out according to the way that they did. And this seems to be one of those places where the Trinity is revealed typologically. I'm not alone in this. Augustine, the ancient biblical interpreter, Augustine and many other old theologians saw a type of the Trinity in this passage. And what does the Trinity teach? That Yahweh is the one true God. But he eternally subsists in three persons. He is one being in three eternal relations: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. We know this doctrine, not from just types and shadows, but from what the scripture clearly teaches. For example, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen speaks of the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He said, Well, that's three things, but there's one name baptizing them in the name, singular, of these three persons of the one name. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God is one in His essence, but He eternally exists in three ways, or personal relations. And so knowing this doctrine, we can see shadows of it in other places of the Bible. Now, what's the point why bring all this up and bring all this out? Well, this is the point. That the one true God who is triune graciously approaches Abraham. It's grace. Many get confused. They actually think that the Son is gracious and the Father is harsh. The father is a father of wrath. And Jesus is gracious. I love Jesus. I actually had someone tell me one time. They really like Jesus, but they don't like God the Father. We've completely misunderstood God. Jesus says, if you would know the Father, look at me. The triune God is a God of grace, a saving God. And then if you see it there in verse 3 what Abraham says, he says, "Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. That, word, that Hebrew word translated favor is the word for grace. If you have grace upon me, don't pass me by. And then we're told in verse 4 what Abraham wants to do. It says he wants to commune with God. He says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, and this is of course the one God speaking, but they speak together, do as you have said. That is really good news. God says, I want to commune with you. Then, verse six and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the half that he had prepared. And the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Do you know all through the Bible that there's meals that symbolize communion with God? Do you know in the Old Testament, a portion of the sacrifice was often Yahweh's portion that was for him to eat? It would be burned and it would go up to his nostrils, or there'd be a part separated part for the worshiper, part for God. The Lord's Supper is a meal with God of communion and fellowship with Him. The, the marriage feast of the Lamb on the last day is a communion meal. What is that about? It's about communing with Him, which is what you and I are made for. Now, notice this. What is this whole passage about? We have a tree. We have God in His presence. We have communion. We actually even have a, a sacrifice and then eating it. This is temple imagery. There's a tent, slaughter of an, an animal, communion meal. This is the covenant. This is the reenactment of the Abrahamic covenant that was made actually in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. That's what this is about. The covenant between God and Abraham, and that this covenant of circumcision was made to provide the Messiah. Now, the Messiah provides salvation but the covenant of circumcision provides the Messiah. and So we see the purpose of God's visit there in verses 9 and 10. Why does God come? They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's why he came. This time next year, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So, what's going on? Sarah is well past childbearing age. Abraham is old, but what does God promise? An unbelievable, miraculous birth, something that simply can't happen. This is reminiscent of many other such promises in the Bible I want to just show you one to show you that this is happening. We're not going to preach on all these, but I want to read some of them just to remember them. Look at 2 Kings. Hold your place here, but turn with me to 2 Kings 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. Do you remember Elisha and the Shunammite woman? 2 Kings 4, verse 8. Notice the parallels between what's happening here and and what happened there. This is how the Bible works. You know what God does? He is the sovereign God who controls history, and he keeps doing the same thing over and over because it has a meaning, and he explains it over and over. And it's all telling one story in the end. And here's what he says in 2 Kings 4, verse 8. This is where typology comes from, by the way. It's a repeated pattern. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a healthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So here's a representative of God coming, and she's wanting to show him hospitality and eat food with him. Whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there, a lamp showing he's home, he, you know, he can come there and see a table, very, all the comforts, and then verse 11. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and she said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us, what is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. I remember, Sarah was in the doorway, listening behind the door. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. About this time next year, you shall embrace a son. <laughs> And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. This is a type of Jesus, y'all. This is a promise. This is the same pattern. We see it again and again. Do you remember other instances? Remember Hannah, who was barren and a neglected woman? And she goes and she prays to God. And God promises her a son, and she bears Samuel. Do you remember John the Baptist? Zechariah's in the temple. The angel promises a son. He's like, no way. He doubts in his heart. He's struck mute until the son is born. All of these are types of Christ, the promise, who comes against all odds. That's what the, the message is. The antitype of these promises is Jesus Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 20 to 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, who was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. O favored one, graced woman. Greetings. O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Bible tells one story from beginning to end, and here we have the promise of Isaac in Genesis 18. Now back to Genesis 18 and look with me at verse 11. So here we have the promise of God that you're going to bear a son about this time next year, but look at what Abraham and Sarah do in verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, I wonder what that's like, laughing to yourself, I and mean, it wasn't, she's, look, God, remember, she's in the manifest presence of Yahweh, there's someone before her who tells her this, and she laughs to herself, she chuckles under her breath, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? What she means is, shall I have this blessing? Will there be such a delight to me? So why does she laugh? Because she doesn't believe. Remember the Shunammite woman? She said, you don't lie. That's what's in Sarah's heart. She doesn't believe. She's old. Abraham is old. There's no way she could have this blessing. God made a promise, and Sarah laughed. Now, to be fair, Abraham also laughed. Do you remember? Genesis 17, one chapter before, verse 16. I will bless her, God says, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will become, shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Do you see what's going on theologically here? It's explaining us to ourselves. God made a promise, and they didn't believe. It's laughable that God's promises would really come to pass, our sinful hearts think. This is really the root of every single sin. Abraham and Sarah didn't believe, really, the goodness and power of God to bring about His promise. Doesn't this also show us something else? Clearly, God didn't draw near to Abraham or Sarah because of their faith. Because of their faith. What kind of faith is this? Why did God visit them? Not because they were... There's bad interpretations of this where they say, oh, look, God had favor on them because they were such great believers. No, they were not. In fact, there's no faith even evident here in the promise. They laugh at the promise, they doubted the promise. Did you know that God's promises do not depend on your faith? In fact, his promises are what create your faith. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to laugh at God's seemingly impossible promises. He promises you that He cancels your debts because of Christ, that He separates your sins as far as the East is from the West, that He remembers your sins no more, He gives you the fullness of life. Are you ever tempted to laugh? He promises that He will make you like Christ, that He will kill all of your sins that cause harm to you and to others. He promises that. Are you ever tempted to laugh? That He'll wipe every tear away from your eyes, that He'll take away every grief, that He gives you His good law, revealing what a life of virtue looks like, perfectly embodied in Jesus. And He gives you His commandments as the way to happiness. Not temporal pleasures, but true fullness of life and joy and well-being. He gives you His law because He loves you. Are you ever tempted to laugh? Beloved child of God, He will raise you from the dead. He will bring you into eternal glory, wherein only righteousness dwells. He will never leave you or forsake you. These promises might seem and feel impossible, even contrary to your experience or to nature itself. Are you tempted to laugh? But look at how God responds to Sarah's laughter in Genesis 18, verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and about this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. God responds to Sarah's doubt. How? By reasserting the promise and underlying it with his being. Do you know our greatest hope isn't the promise of God? Lots of people make promises. Your hope isn't that God says something. It's that God is. Full stop. And that he is, what he says here, is anything too hard for Yahweh? The great I am. His being is the guarantee of his promise. He has all power. He created the world out of nothing. He continues to uphold, direct, and govern everything. God can do anything that doesn't contradict his own nature. And as the Catechism tells us, God can do all his holy will. Is anything too impossible? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So our hope is in God's Word because of who God is, an unchanging, all-powerful, good God who keeps every promise He's ever made, not on our timetable, not in the way we would always expect, but He does it. And the history of the world is a history of Him keeping His promises. We see a second thing about God. So first, God's being is all-powerful, He is omnipotent, therefore we can trust His promises. But we see in verse 14 that she will have a son at the appointed time. That is, God has a decree. He appoints the times. He declares it and he will do it. All of history is the unfolding of his wise decree. And God says at about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. That's the appointed time. It will happen. These are the same reasons we can trust Christ's promises. Jesus is all-powerful, and His promises will come to pass at the appointed time. Sometimes Christians wonder, will He ever bring about His promises? There are times when we can't see His promises. They seem humanly or physically impossible, but God and Jesus will bring them about. So the first thing we see here is God's gracious promise of a child from whom Jesus would come and save the world. But second, let's look at God's gracious gift of the child. Now we'll go to Genesis chapter 21, His gracious gift. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. It says, The Lord, this is again Yahweh, visited Sarah as He had said. Apparently another visitation of Yahweh. And the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. In other words, he gave her a child. It was impossible for Sarah to have a child, but he gave her a child. And then verse 2, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So she gave birth to Isaac, and Abraham names the child Isaac, which means he laughs. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's promise, but God kept his promise. And now Isaac can laugh, the laughter of life. Abraham and Sarah both can laugh, a laughter of joy. Earlier, Sarah laughed with doubt now verse 6 god has made laughter for me she laughs with joy this is what grace does god's gracious promises turns our doubtful laughter into a laughter of joy and faith And then verse 4, it says, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. In other words, Abraham obeyed God. Like, what's the point of circumcision? doesn't even seem relevant, actually. (laughs) Like, maybe many of God's commands. Like, why do we do it this way? Why does God say to do that? What's the point of doing that? But Abraham saw God's promise fulfilled, and now there is no question. You obey him. He is the one true God and he kept his commandment. Abraham believed God's promise, and Abraham's faith led to obedience. Now, many people reverse this order. It is crucial you don't get this wrong, that what this text is teaching is vital to your life. I really mean that. Many say that your obedience will unlock God's promises. They say, if you obey God, if you make sacrifices, if you give and serve, then... God will bless you with His promises. Or if you do what God says, then He'll keep His promises to you. First, you have to be faithful to God, and then God will be faithful to you. Is that what this story says? First, you have to be faithful to God, and then He'll be faithful to you. This passage says exactly the opposite. It says that God makes a promise, and then He keeps it, and then His Faithfulness persuades us to believe him. And then we obey him by faith. That is the gospel. The promise of God is what creates faith. Abraham and Sarah were filled with doubts and unbelief until the child was born. They laughed at God until God did what he promised. They doubted. What did they do when they doubted? Do you remember? We didn't read this part. But they sinned. They committed adultery. They agreed together that Abraham could commit adultery. And then, after Hagar bore the child, they mistreated her, treated her harshly, which is murder. What were they doing? They were trying to get the blessings of God apart from God. They wanted the life of God without the presence of God. They wanted the things of God without the promise of God. But now when God does what He promised, they both believe and they obey Him. I wonder if you're persuaded by God's promise keeping. Maybe there are times when you've doubted whether you can really trust Him to save you. There could be times when you thought you could save your own life by doing things your way which always involves a little sin, at least in our minds. A little sin, just a little. A compromise here, because really we're just trying to get what God wants for us. Maybe in your darker moments you think you can, by your own wisdom, control your life and get the things you want, and so you can be truly covetous, and your heart is covetous. Or truly happy and your heart is covetous and you might, you might be led to adultery or the mistreatment of other people and then denying it all just like Abraham and Sarah and God could just say he could, he could say this he could look at your sin and your doubt and he could say believe me you are a creature from the dirt obey my commandments you could say that because it's true it's a true statement but what does god do he caused jesus christ to be born of a virgin in the little town of bethlehem he kept his promise that he made back in genesis 3:15 what god did on christmas day 2000 years ago was humanly and physically impossible He caused a virgin to give birth, but then he did something more impossible than that. What he actually did was the most impossible thing of all. The eternal Son of God assumed a human nature. The miracle of miracles, he came into this world to save wretched, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinners from themselves and from his own justice. The very Son of God came to save us from our sins. Do you believe? What is His promise intended to do? What is His promise keeping intended to do? To teach you His goodness. To persuade you to believe in Him. We don't keep His law but he obeyed the law as our substitute to fulfill all righteousness. We doubt and break his gracious commandments, but Jesus died on the cross to pay for the guilt of our sins. Do you see how God acts to keep his promises? You didn't do anything to get him to die for your sins. What did you do? You didn't believe. You didn't obey. God just did a miracle, and he proves that he is trustworthy. And so here's the question. Won't you trust him what more actually could he possibly do than what he has done to prove his goodness, his power, his trustworthiness? Will you trust him to forgive your sins? I don't know. What have you, how have you broken God's law? What ways do you send in mind and heart and deed toward those that God has put in your life and against God himself? What have you done? Will you trust him to forgive you? That Christ on the cross is really sufficient for your sins, that his blood really washes you white as snow. Will you trust him? But will you trust him for more than forgiveness? Like Abraham and Sarah, will you trust that his commandments are for your good? Because he's good. And God doesn't know how to do anything but give a good commandment. Because he's good. Keeping his commandments doesn't make sense all the time. It's not always practical. Obeying him can feel like sacrifice and pain in the moment. But if you see that Christ is good, he will convince you of the goodness of his law. That is for your good, for your happiness actually, your well-being, your, your joy, your life. Some would say that we have to believe in order to get the promises of the gospel. You heard that? Do you want the promises of the gospel to be yours? Then first you have to believe. But the truth is this, that the promises of God in the gospel are what make us believe by the power of the Spirit at work within us. And when we believe, we do keep His commandments and learn to keep His commandments more and more, just as Abraham did in this passage. And so we're looking at this in this story as a type. We see the birth of Isaac as a type of Christ. We also saw a type of the Trinity. But now I'd like to draw your attention briefly to how the story continues and that the types don't stop (laughs) in the story of Isaac. So we've been looking at Genesis 21 where Isaac is born, but look at the next chapter. What's he born for? sacrifice the very next chapter genesis 22 we have the sacrifice of isaac is this not telling us something isaac was born a miraculous birth the child of the promise born for what sacrifice does that remind you of anything genesis 22 tells us this story and in this story abraham takes isaac up on the mountain who else went up on a mountain jesus went up on Mount Calvary. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice, actually upon which he would be sacrificed, on his back going up the mountain. Just like Christ carried the cross, Abraham bound Isaac and was going to obey God by sacrificing his only begotten son. But then God stopped Abraham and provided the ram as a substitute so the story of Isaac's sacrifice is really a story of substitution. We're here, Isaac is to be sacrificed, and God says, no, I'm going to provide a ram to die in Isaac's place. What does all this mean? How do we interpret this? Well, the New Testament teaches us how to interpret it typologically. If you look at Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19, it tells us, Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So here's Abraham's thinking. God did a miracle and caused his child to be born. I believe him. And so, if he wants me to kill this child, I'll do it, but I know for certain this is the child to promise, and he must be going to raise him from the dead. He didn't have that revelation. He did systematic theology. It was actually very well done, because had had Abraham killed Isaac, it must be that he would be raised from the dead. It's an absolutely logical deduction from the truth of God's promise. He was right, but then it says in verse 19... Consider that God was able even to raise him from the dead, Hebrews eleven, nineteen. 19, from which, ready, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Figuratively speaking, which means metaphorically, typologically, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. If you look at uh, Genesis 22, what you find out is that God said, sacrifice your son, Abraham. Three days later, God stopped the sacrifice. For three days, Isaac was dead in Abraham's mind, as good as dead. And on the third day, figuratively speaking, he was raised. He received him back. He trusted the Lord. And this is what we see. Is that Abraham's faith was strengthened through the promises of God, but not just as promises, but through God's promise keeping. And we can take this one step further: that God's, since God, as God substituted a ram for Isaac, it shows us how Christ was substituted for us. And the fact that Isaac lived and did not die is a type, not only a type of Christ's resurrection, but it is a type of our resurrection on the last day. And this is our hope, and I wonder, will you believe it? That you and I will be raised to eternal glory. That it will not be death to die if the Lord tarries, but we will go through death to resurrection and live forever with Jesus because he bought our life with his death. And as we enter into this Christmas season, won't you set your mind not only on the promises of God, but on the fact that he kept them and he will keep them. And you can trust him because he's good. And he's not just well-intended good. He is all-powerful good. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your promises, for Jesus, the line of promise through Isaac all the shadows and figures of the Old Testament that we can see now clearly in light of the new. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief and strengthen us in light of the face of Christ. In his name, amen.